This story that we read is fast-paced. It is action-packed. It is go, go, go. It is filled with tension. And if I'm being really honest to myself, and if I'm being really honest to you this morning, I really struggle with this story. This action-packed story is terrifying and, and scary and full of brutal scenes, and I struggle with it. I, if I'm being honest, this is a struggle for me, and so I'd like to say at the beginning, if you have read this story for the first time or many times and you struggle with it, we are glad that you're here this morning. If you are showing up to church and you are trying to understand who this God that we worship is, it's a blessing that you're here. Maybe we can make a, a really quick deal before we look at the passage. Can we make a deal to struggle together in community through this passage so that if we struggle together, we may receive truth together in community? Abraham is awoken by his God. Not by a God, but by his God. God says, Abraham, and Abraham answers and says, here I am. This is the God that Abraham has gotten to know for 11 chapters in Genesis before this. Abraham is growing accustomed to this voice. This is not a random occurrence. This is not a random voice. This is a voice that he knows intimately. This is not a God. This is Abraham's God, and he knows him. In fact, for 11 chapters and decades of Abraham's life, he has been getting to know this God, and God has been slowly revealing who he is and who he isn't. Once God's voice is acknowledged by Abraham, God begins to explain what will happen three days from now. God said, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. Now imagine that you are a Jew hearing this for the first time, you and your neighbors are sitting in a circle around a fire, there's a speaker, and this speaker has been telling you the story of Genesis, and just before this, you've heard about the promise that God gave, gave to Abraham. Abraham, you're going to have a son, your offspring are going to number more than the stars, Abraham has this son, his name is Isaac. And now you and your neighbors and your friends sitting around this fire here, Abraham, I want you to take your son. And I think that entire audience would lean forward in anticipation, wondering what's going to happen next. They would then hear your only son, and they would be on the edge of their seat wondering what's going to happen they would then hear whom you love and maybe their heart would start beating a little faster. Isaac. Abraham, you're going to sacrifice Isaac. 
And I think that ancient speaker would be able to see the very moment that that audience, that their breath stopped. Are you serious right now? Isaac? Isaac is going to be sacrificed? I mean, we, as the audience, we just heard he's the promised son. He's the promise that God fulfilled and and now he's going to be taken away? Like, Isaac, are you serious? This, this Jewish audience is the descendants of, of Isaac. What, what is going on here in this story? In fact, the tension that they're feeling, you, you can probably see that Abraham is also feeling. Although it isn't recorded this way, I think that this is a likely way that the conversation went between God and Abraham. God spoke to Abraham in the night and he said, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. Abraham, I want you to take your son. But, God, I have, I have two sons. Abraham, your only son. But, God, this son is an only to his mom, Sarah, and this son is an only to his mom, Hagar. Abraham, you're going to take the son that you love. But God, I love both of them. You're going to take Isaac. Oh, okay. You're going to take your son Isaac, whom you love, and you're going to sacrifice him on a mountain that I'm going to show you. Each phrase becomes increasingly more intimidating for Abraham. Each phrase becomes increasingly more problematic for the promise that Abraham has in his future. This is a future and a promise that Abraham has been working hard to have. This is a promise that God gave to him. And now it seemed like that promise was being taken away in an instant. Abraham's devastated. Can you feel that? Can you see how Abraham might have been taking this? His heart going into his stomach. He's feeling devastated and alone and confused. This is the situation Abraham is facing. Also in this verse, we see where this is going to take place. It says, on a mountain in the land of Moriah. Now why why would the author include this? The author could have included anything, but this is a very important addition. So why would the author take the time to include it? I think there's a few reasons. First, history tells us, or tradition, I guess I should say, tradition tells us that this mountain might be the eventual location of Solomon's temple. And Solomon's temple is the place where millions and millions of Jews would go, would sacrifice an animal on their behalf for their sins. This is crazy foreshadowing, if that's true. This might mean that Abraham was the first person to potentially bring a sacrifice to that mountain. But we we aren't sure. We aren't sure exactly where the location is. The one thing that we are sure of, 
And I think the entire reason that the author included it in the chapter is the literal translation of Mount Moriah. The translation of Mount Moriah is this is the mountain where God sees. And so, us as the audience, we have the ability to see that this is a mountain where God is going to be intimately a part of the situation. God is not the type where he gives a command and then he retreats to his throne and he waits to see what happens, but God is going to be intimately a part of this situation. He is there with Abraham. He is witnessing it. He is a part of this. He is a part of this. Unfortunately, Abraham has no idea what the outcome will be. We do, as the audience. We are aware that God sees. We are aware that this is a test. Verse 1 tells us that, but Abraham has no idea what is going to happen next. And so in the first few verses, we see this tension forming. On the one hand, we see God sees. God is intimately a part of this situation. God is not distant, but God is close. But Abraham is given a task that he doesn't know if he can complete. God is there, but it's still difficult. The sun is rising over the desert, illuminating a busy scene. Servants scurry around their owner's elaborate campsite, preparing for an unexpected journey. Their master's intentions catch them off guard, for he had only learned of the trip himself the night before. He arose early that morning, gave his servants instructions, and then proceeded to awake his son. Can you imagine the anxiety that Abraham is facing in this situation? The fear, the worry, the doubt. I mean, we don't see him telling his wife what God told him. Maybe he wanted to keep her out of this. This is too difficult of a situation. We also see Abraham doesn't really tell a lot to his servants either, just the bare essentials. Verse 3, I think, gives us a final look at the potential emotional state that Abraham was facing. And I love how the author, Larry Powell, describes Abraham in verse 3. Abraham is frantically cutting the wood with all the force he could muster. The sound of the axe striking the tree, hiding his sobbing but not his tears. This is the picture of a typical man trying to deal with his emotions. If, this, if Abraham was set in a modern area, maybe he would be in the garage or cleaning the attic. He's filled with tension. What do I do with this command that God has given me and the devastating feeling that I am feeling right now? What, what do I do with this? Maybe he's cutting the wood because he is the only one that wants to be responsible 
for the action that's to happen. We don't know. But Abraham is devastated. This tear-soaked man must now journey three days through the desert with his servants, with his son, with firewood, a fire starter, and a knife to the mountain where God sees. The end of verse 3 is all we see about the journey. The end of verse 3 says, Abraham arose and went to the place of which God had told him. I think one little sentence for three entire days. Why so simple? Well, I, I think the author is trying to show us two very important things. The first, Abraham is obedient. Abraham hears the command of God. Abraham accepts and feels the emotion that he's naturally going to feel, and he goes. He arises and journeys. This is a a symbol of obedience. I think on the other hand, though, the second thing that the author is intending to do is to create a contrast. And we see it with the words that are used. Abraham arose. This is the idea of going from where you were to somewhere else. This is a, a word of action, of purpose. I am arising. And then we hear silence on the trip. Total silence. We don't know anything about it. And then verse 4, we hear that on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Do you see the ebbs and flows here? He is arising. He is silent. He is raising his eyes again. I think this is an intentional contrast by the author. This is an intentional ebb and flow to show just how broken this man is. Abraham is in total silence for three days. And this is a picture of a man broken and alone with his thoughts. And remember, this is a three-day journey. This is not a short trip. Three days, he was potentially silent. The servants were silent. Isaac was silent. They journeyed. They walked for miles and miles in total silence. They set up camp alone in their silence. They maybe got ready to sleep or not sleep in silence. Maybe Abraham was so filled with emotion that if he said one word, the sobbing would be uncontrollable. Maybe if he said one word, he wouldn't be able to go through with it. And so he is silent and alone in his thoughts for three days. He is so burdened and full of emotion in, these, in this sentence. Have you ever felt like this? Have you ever felt so burdened and so emotional? So if you talk about it, it's 
it's going to be uncontrollable. The patriarch Abraham knows what that feels like. He's experiencing it. We also need to remember that this is not just a story. This is a real man in a real place and time in history. He is not living in a vacuum. He is really facing these emotions. And despite these emotions, Abraham is able to find the strength to stay obedient to God. Abraham arises ready to be obedient to God. He silently walks the journey, raises his eyes to the mountain and to God. And you can almost feel him echo what he first said to God. God, here I am. I'm doing this. Abraham is at the base of the mountain called Moriah, which is God sees. Abraham is filled with emotion. But again, if I'm really being honest, I am confused by Abraham's actions. I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Why does Abraham just accept this command from God? Where's the challenge? I expected to see paragraphs of challenge. Like, I don't want to do this, God. Where's the, where's the challenge here? I mean, we know that Abraham is a really good arguer. If you remember in Genesis chapter 18, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because it is filled with wickedness. And Abraham feels that it's not right to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And so he challenges God. He argues with the God of the universe. And he says, God, I don't think that's right. If there are 50 righteous men in that city, will you save it? God, if there are 40 righteous men in the city, will you save it? God, if there are 10, only 10 righteous men in the city, will you save it? Abraham believed that it wasn't right for God to kill the righteous with the wicked. And so he challenges him. Where's the challenge here? This is, this is your son we're talking about. Where's the challenge? Abraham seems to accept God's command almost immediately. Yes, he's emotional. Yes, he's sad, but he accepts it. Why doesn't Abraham argue with God? Well, I think one reason that it might be is because for Abraham, a request like this wouldn't have been out of left field. Abraham would be familiar with these types of requests. For Abraham, again, in the specific time and geographic location that he was living in, Child sacrifice was a normal picture of a God in his culture and society. In fact, again, we often forget that Abraham is not living in a vacuum. Abraham is not secluded from the world, but Abraham is interacting with it. He is interacting with his neighbors, with other religions, with other People groups, other people that have other thoughts. And it seemed like Abraham wasn't just learning about God from God himself. Abraham was learning about God from 
the culture and society around him. He was allowing the culture to affect his view of God. And the society that he lived in painted a very vivid picture of what they thought God or gods looked like. The society and culture that Abraham lived in had picture kind of like this of God, that God is distant, God is separate from the world. The culture that he lived in thought that God was violent and chaotic and violent, bloody. The culture thought that God's selfish, that we're here just as slaves, ultimately. In fact, one way that we can look further into how Abraham's culture viewed what they thought God looked like, we can look at the Babylonian creation account. It's long, so I'll paraphrase it for you. There was the God of chaos and oceans, and there was the God of fresh water. And the Babylonians say that they were just kind of relaxing, spending time, but there were these lesser gods that were babbling and arguing and causing problems. And so the two greater gods got into a fight. One said, we should kill them. They're annoying us. Let's get rid of them. The other god said, I think we should leave them alone. And so these two gods get into a great conflict where all of the gods pick sides and there's this crazy battle and it ends with this god of chaos being killed and cut in half. For the Babylonians, they say that the top half of that god body becomes the sky and the lower half becomes the earth. And the god that was victorious then decides, I'm pretty tired. I think I deserve a break and so I'm going to take the blood from that defeated God and I'm going to make humans to be my slaves because I don't really want to do any more work I'm tired and so they can do it for me this this is the picture of the Babylonians this is the picture that the Babylonians are painting that their ancestors were painting that the gods are distant that they're violent, that they're chaotic, that they're violent with one another, that in order not even to be liked by them, but just to be neutral, uh, we have to make child sacrifices. We have to shed blood. That really the only reason we're here is to be slaves. And Abraham's living in the middle of this. He's hearing all of these thoughts and all of these pictures of what they think God looks like. And I think it's no question that Abraham accepted what God told him. He thought, maybe my God is the same as those gods I hear about. If they need this, maybe my God does too. I mean, that's what I'm used to hearing. That's what society says. That's what the culture around me says. Maybe that's true. Abraham allowed the culture around him to teach him who God is. 
In fact, it seems as if this societal picture of God is so ingrained in Abraham that he just accepts the command. And so Abraham, instead of arguing, Abraham tries to stall. Verses 9 to 10 tell us that they came to the place of which God <coughs> excuse me, had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Up to this point in the story, uh, the author's writing really quickly. It's fast-paced. It's action-packed. It's going. There is stuff happening all the time. And when I read this, it seems like time is just a little slower. You know, time is frozen. Abraham, his servants, and Isaac, they walk silently for three days. They get to the mountain, and Abraham slowly and thoughtfully removes the wood from Isaac's back. He slowly and methodically places each piece of wood on and around the altar. Abraham slowly binds his son with rope, places him on the altar, tears in both of their eyes. And Abraham then takes the knife and quietly raises it to the sky, praying someone's going to stop this from happening. Abraham is stalling. In fact, if we look at the book of Leviticus, Abraham performs this burnt offering incorrectly. He rearranges the order of it. In Leviticus, we see that you are to take a, an unblemished animal, you are to place your hand on that animal and remind yourself that that animal is taking my rightful place. You then quickly and humanely kill the animal and place it on the altar for your sins. But Abraham alters the pattern. Abraham alters it to bide himself and his son a little bit more time. Abraham is so entrenched in his culture that he said, this is, must be what my God is like. I can't change that. <coughs> so I'll stall. I'll stall. I'll pray. Hopefully something is going to happen. If those gods that those people worship want child sacrifice, then maybe my God does too. But our God is different. Our God is not like the pictures painted by society, and we see that an angel of the one true God shouts, Abraham, Abraham. He really wants him to hear this. Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham says, here I am. 
Abraham, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham, I'm different. I want your allegiance, but I don't want your son's blood. You may think you know me based on what your society says. You may think you know me because of what your neighbors have told you. You may think you know me based on what they do. That's not me. I'm different, Abraham. I'm different. And Abraham raises his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham then gives the mountain a second name. This is the mountain where God sees, and this is the mountain where God provides. God is intimately a part of this situation, and God will provide for me when I need him. God is intimately a part of this, and God is there for me. Abraham would be saying, I know who my God is. My God is not like what my culture has said. My God is different. My God is very different. Our God sees our pain and our God provides. And God doesn't stop by providing that ram for Abraham. But God provides the lamb. In verses 7 to 8, Isaac speaks to Abraham. He says, My father, here I am, my son. Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Dad, where where are we going to find this lamb? God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And God does provide the lamb. This isn't an animal. This is not a human sacrifice, a child sacrifice. This is God providing himself in the form of Jesus Christ to take our place to be that sin offering that we can't accomplish on our own. God sees and God provides and He provides in a powerful way by sending Himself through Jesus Christ. In fact, this entire chapter in Genesis 22 screams Jesus. Jesus is all throughout this. Abraham, Isaac, and the servants journey for three days in silence and Jesus is dead for three days until he arises victorious. Isaac carries the very wood that he is to be put on, on the altar, on his back. Jesus carries the wooden cross to where he will be crucified. The ram caught in the thorns 
and Jesus wears the crown of thorns, victorious. This story is Jesus. It's about Him. He is that sacrifice. This lamb that Isaac is asking about is Him. Jesus is that sacrifice once and for all. Again, God says, I am different. I'm different. I didn't make you to be my slaves. I made you because I love you. Those people say, you're slaves? That's, that's not what I did. I made you in my image. I made you because I love you. Genesis says, in the image of God, He created them, male and female. I'm different. You're not my slaves. You are my children. I made you because I love you. I see your pain. I see your worry. I see your doubt. You may think I only see you on this mountain called the mountain where I see, but this entire world is my mountain. I see you everywhere. Everywhere is my seeing mountain. I see you. I see what you're going through. And I will provide. And God does just that. Jesus Christ is the once and for all God's sacrifice. So, so what now? We've just journeyed through Abraham's story. We've seen the emotions he's feeling. We've tried to understand what he was going through, the tension that was in this entire narrative. But, but what about your story? What about my story, our story? Maybe you're sitting here and you've journeyed with God for decades. Or maybe just for a week or a month. Maybe you knew God a long time ago and you've walked away from Him. Maybe you are just meeting Him for the first time now. I think regardless of where we are, there is a tension that is true and a question that needs to be asked. How do we find the true picture of God amidst the hundreds of pictures that society paints? How do we find the true picture of God amidst the hundreds of pictures that society paints? As we interact with our society, we're being influenced. We may be, influencing, be, we may be influenced and not notice it or just not question it. This is normal. This is how life is. We just assume that this is a normal existence that we are living. Maybe in trying to figure out this picture, you've heard that God hates a certain group of people, or I need to be better in order to come to God, or I need to do more or God isn't going to love me, and that's fake pictures. That's fake pictures. And how do we then decipher between these fake pictures and the picture of the one true God? How do we fully understand that intimate voice that Abraham was getting to know over 11 chapters. 
And I don't want you to get confused. This isn't me saying that society is bad and church is good. We can learn a lot from society. We can learn a lot from culture. In fact, the entire book of Genesis is God teaching in the culture and through culture. But I think we have a choice. I think we have a choice that we can either be complacent consumers, absorbing all of the pictures of God like a sponge, not really sure what to do with them. Or I think we can be conscious. We can be conscious members of this community and society and culture and seek out that one true picture of the God that is different. God is different. God sees and God is providing. Worship team, I'm just finishing up. More specifically, if God doesn't just see on that one mountain, but that the entire world is God's seeing mountain, how are we doing with our neighbors? Do our neighbors see the one true picture of God? The true picture of who God is in us? Or are we perpetuating a false image in how we live and how we interact and what we say? Are we living lives that scream, our God is different? Our God is different. He sees you intimately and He is there to provide.